Uh, today we are going to begin a new series from the book of Philippians that I'm calling Live Strong. And I like the sound of that, Live Strong, because I really believe that that's how God wants us to live as followers. Uh, this is no time in our history for us to retreat. It is a point where I believe the people of God really need to start living our lives, not just strong, but as I've said many times, loud. We need to let people know who we are and we need to let them know what it is that we believe in. And truthfully, there isn't anyone in the Bible who did that better than the Apostle Paul, the author of this epistle or this letter that was written to the church in Philippi. Paul faced all kinds of obstacles and all kinds of persecutions, and yet his faith in God and his love for the gospel of Jesus Christ made him a strong force for the kingdom of God. Philippians has been called Paul's epistle of joy because the theme of joy encompasses the entire book. And it's apparent that Paul had a particularly warm relationship with the Christians in Philippi who are referred to as Philippians, thus the name of this book. They were very supportive of Paul's mission and they formed a partnership in the gospel which, which started from the very first day that he got there. The church in Philippi was located on the extreme eastern part of Macedonia, so it was the first church planted on European soil. It was a new part of the world for the Apostle Paul. It, it was the West. It was the land of the Greeks and, and the home of Alexander the Great. And briefly, we're going to look at God, how God used the Apostle Paul to start and launch this new church in Philippi. But understand, none of that took place in the book of Philippians. It actually occurs in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to learn together about how he started this church, but put your thumb in or your finger in the marker in the book of Philippians, because we're going to go back to that later on after the introduction. Today, I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version, Acts chapter 16, verse 6, starting with verse 6 through 10. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them the, uh, no, I'm sorry, did not permit them. <laughs> There's so many eas in that thing. It's... Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's traveling from church to church in the Middle East, and he's training leaders and encouraging people to pray strong when all of a sudden he gets this prompting from the Holy Spirit. In essence, the Holy Spirit is, is saying, change your travel plans, board a ship, and head toward the city of Philippi. Paul had never been to Philippi before, and he doesn't really know why God is sending him there, but he's being obedient to this prompting from the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to make a very important point here in that when you receive a prompting from the Holy Spirit, you need to pay attention because I wonder how many of us have missed out on something very special or conversely, how many difficulties have we entered into because we were not listening to the voice or the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It happens to us more than you would probably realize. Certainly you first got to discern that it is from God and then when you discern that, you must clearly follow that prompting because you never know what he might do in your life and conversely, you never know what might not happen in your life if you don't listen to that prompting. Let's continue on to verse 11 through 15. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and then next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. 
the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when he and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So Paul follows the prompting of the Holy Spirit and he winds up in Philippi, but once he gets there, he doesn't really know exactly what he's supposed to do. Maybe he's supposed to start a church there. He doesn't know for sure. But while he's waiting for further direction from God, he sits down by this river to pray. And in a short while, a businesswoman from that city, she strolls down by the river. Her name is Lydia and she strikes up a conversation with the apostle Paul. I kind of feel like Paul probably struck up a conversation with her. And of course, Paul can't help himself. And in a few hours, she understands that Christ died on the cross for her sins. And this results in Lydia and her entire family getting saved and getting baptized. Apparently, this, this Lydia was a wealthy woman with a large house. How do I surmise this? Because in her excitement about her newfound faith in Jesus, she invites Paul and his ministry team to stay in her home. Biblical scholars believe that it was Lydia's home that became the first meeting place for that church in Philippi. Talk about living strong. On Paul's very first Sunday in Philippi, he converts this woman to Jesus as well as her entire family, and he gets his first church members and he gets a place for his team to stay. And in addition to that, he gets a gathering place, something of brick and mortar where they can meet and they can worship God. Overall, when you think about it, it's a pretty good start for the Apostle Paul in Philippi. However, right after that, things start going south. Move to verse 16 through 24. Now it happened as we went to pray that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And he came out of her that very hour. But when her master saw that their hope for profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So after all these great things happen, Paul is walking around Philippi and he performs a healing. He, in the name of Jesus, he casts out a demon out of this demon-possessed young woman and the miracle causes such a ruckus in town square, so much so that Paul and his ministry partner Silas wind up getting arrested and beaten severely and thrown into a rat-infested prison. Go down to verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. So while Paul and Silas are recuperating from the beating that they had taken earlier in the day, they decide to sing songs of praise to our Lord. 
I wonder how many of us would be singing songs of praise after we just got beaten by sticks and thrown into a prison cell. But about midnight, out of nowhere, in their worship, in their praise comes this earthquake and it shakes the prison with such great force that the doors on their, uh, come off their hinges and swing wide open and the chains and the stocks that they're in are now loosened. And Paul and Silas now have this perfect opportunity to make a run for it, but they get another prompting from the Holy Spirit to just stay put. Imagine that. I'm not sure that they understand this prompting, and I know I certainly don't, but again, they have chosen to be obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And moments later, it all makes sense. Because as the prison guard comes into their view, they notice that he's about ready to commit suicide. Why? Because he knows that he's gonna get hung in the morning because he let Paul and Silas escape during that earthquake. So Paul yells out to him, he says, don't do it. And when the guard realizes that they're both are still there, he can't believe it. It, 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 it breaks him, it, he, he doesn't understand it. He says, why would you guys not leave? Why would you stay here when you had the chance to go? Were you really concerned about me getting hung in the morning? Why would you even care about me? And Paul and Silas tell him, well, because you matter to God. And Christ came and he died for your sin. And this guy can't get over it. And right there in the middle of the jail, he gives his life to Jesus and the jailer becomes the second member of the church in Philippi, followed by all the members of his household who later that night accepted Jesus. Down to verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. <laughs> I'll stay here a little longer. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. You can't do that to a Roman citizen. You could do it to a Jew, but they didn't know Paul was a Roman. And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So after Paul and Silas are released from prison, they go back to Lydia's house and they preach and they teach and they encourage this fledgling little flock and the church begins to grow and leaders start to rise up within the church and the church becomes stronger and stronger. Then the Holy Spirit, as he always did, prompts Paul to move on to another city. So they say goodbye to that church in Philippi and they move on to their next destination. But Paul would never forget how that church in Philippi got started. He would never forget about the Holy Spirit's prompting that told him to change his travel plans and get on a ship to Philippi. He would never forget how near the river he led Lydia to Christ. He'll never forget about her generosity. He'll never forget about that earthquake or the jailer's conversion. And Paul would carry those memories with him for the rest of his life. Now let's fast forward a few years. Paul is once again in a prison cell, go figure. In another city, for what? For proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And he sits down under the direction of the Holy Spirit and he writes a letter to this church in Philippi, this church that he loves so much. And that letter becomes this book of the Bible known as Philippians, the book we are going to study for the next several weeks. If you've never read the book of Philippians, you need to do so. I challenge you to do so this week. Philippians is an awesome book in the Bible, and it's not a very long read at all. It's four chapters, and even those of you who hate to read can handle four chapters. And it's one of the warmest of all of Paul's writings because it was very, very personal to him. So with all that history in mind, and I know it took a big chunk of time, but it's important for you to know how this church was founded, let's get into the book of Philippians starting with chapter one, verse one. Philippians one, one through five. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Nice introduction, huh? Paul carries with him all of these worn memories of how God led him to begin this church, and he starts with his opening greeting to encourage them. But this morning, I really want to focus on the next verse, verse 6, which says this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Each week, we are going to take a verse out of this, this book. We're going to unpack what it means, and my hope is that you will memorize these verses, one a week. And the first one is this, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So what does this verse mean? Well, simply it means whatever God starts, he finishes. It's as simple as that. God starts stuff. He created this world. He started the human race. And Paul is reminding this church in Philippi who really started their church. He said, it wasn't me. God started this church. God is the one who said, change your plans and board a ship. Sit by the river, have a conversation with Lydia. Stay, stay in a jail cell when I tell you to stay there. He says, let me set the record straight for all of you. I didn't give birth to this church in Philippi. God did. And in the same way, ladies and gentlemen, High Point Assembly wasn't started by any man. It was conceived and birthed in the mind of Christ. God was the one. And it's essentially for us to understand the back half of verse number six. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Because what God starts, he finishes. There's not a quitting bone in his entire body. If I were to ask you, how many of you know on a husband who quit on his wife or a wife who quit on her husband? How many, of you know, how many of you know parents who quit on their children? You just said, get out of our lives. Or a friend who was in a relationship with another friend and then quit on them. We would all raise our hands. We all know of situations like that. It's happening more and more in our time as uh, loyalty sinks to lower and lower levels. We human beings start all kinds of stuff, but we fail to finish what we start. We quit when the price gets too high. We quit when the going gets too tough. But Paul is reminding this church in Philippi, and he is reminding this church here in Red Bluff, California, that God is fundamentally different than we human beings. Because he redefines loyalty. Paul says what God starts, he finishes. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. And this morning, I want to show you three powerful promises in that verse that I believe should encourage every single one of us. And the first promise pertains to our church. And it is this, because God started this fellowship, he will sustain it. Paul says to the church in Philippi, you may come upon hard times, persecution levels may rise, you may face economic struggles, Sound familiar? And leaders might fail you. But know this, because God started this church and because there's not a quitting bone in God's body, he's going to sustain this place until the very end. People in this church may quit on God, but God will never quit on the people in this church until the very end because God started this church. High Point Assembly was birthed by him. And we can be assured that what God has started, he will finish. Sure, some church members will quit and they will move on. Other people will come and go. And certainly people have come and gone through this building over the decades. Even pastors will come into your life and they will be called to another place. Such was the case when God prompted us to leave Phoenix, Arizona to come here to be your senior pastor. Such is the case is what you heard from Pastor Chris this morning. He has a new assignment from the Lord. In fact, High Point, I believe, had seven other pastors before I got here. But because God gave birth to this church, he who has begun a good work in us, in this community, God will complete it. Some of you don't know the history of this church. I didn't. Had to do some digging. Here's what I found out. 
Our church was birthed from a spirit-filled Pentecostal revival that took place in 1924. Anybody here alive in 1924? Just was wondering. Reverend J.A. Banton, a former Baptist pastor, was asked to lead this group of people who formed this church. They met in an old empty building, and after about a year, a building was purchased, and the first Pentecostal church was established in Red Bluff, California, called Bethel Temple. And the first years of the Pentecostal church I have been told were not easy ones that someone had written an essay on this. There was opposition within the community. People were struggling to understand what a Pentecostal church was all about. And if you are new here today and you've never been in a Pentecostal church, you may have noticed during worship, we heard, you heard a woman speaking in tongues and it was followed by an interpretation. That's a part of Pentecost. And I normally get up and explain that, but it wasn't the right time to do it at that time. We just needed to keep worshiping. But if you're new here, that's what you experienced. It was a message given to us in tongues, followed by an interpretation, which was in English, so we could understand it. And it was an encouragement from God. That's what that was all about, in, in case you're wondering. But they, they were struggling to understand what a Pentecostal church was all about. But the faithful members just kept on keeping on. During the years of the 30s and the 40s and 50s, several pastors served here. Under the leadership of Reverend Everett Morgan, the church bought property and built a new church on the corner of Gilmore and Antelope, which was completed in 1952. I think there's a Subway restaurant there now, right? <laughs> and with this new church came a new pastor named James Benny, who served this church for 26 years. And that was followed by Pastor Don Woods, who I understand uh, uh, served a short tenure. Dan, you're smiling at me because you know the conversation we had this week trying to figure this history out. Then in 1979, a new pastor, James Colbert, came with a new vision. And many year, after many years of blood, sweat, tears, and prayer, the church that you're sitting in was completed eight years later. During the years that followed, Bethel continued to remain strong under the leadership of Dan Billings. And in 1998, a new pastor, Ron Fortenberry, arrived, and under his leadership, the gymnasium and the entire uh, construction to the south was completed. And after Ron, you had a brief period with John Christensen, and then about 10 years ago, you got stuck with me. I hope I didn't miss anything there. I picked some brains, and, and I hope that's all accurate. If I miss somebody, please forgive me. No letters, no phone calls. It's okay. <laughs> By the way, we're coming up on our 100th anniversary, and we're going to plan a celebration in, two, in 2024 uh, for our 100-year anniversary. So stay tuned. If you've got any ideas, bring them to me. But don't come with an idea without not being willing to see it through. Okay? That's good. Great. All right. We got it. All throughout her history, and a few name changes, High Point has had its ups and downs. There have been great times, and there have been difficult times. There were times when the church finances were excellent. There have been times when our finances were downright frightening. There were times of great unity and times of division. That just happens in churches. When our human nature kicks in and we forget to live as the Lord tells us to live. But understand that that's a snapshot of every church when you go through their history. The point is God started this place and God will sustain it through thing, all things, good and bad. And those of you who have been here for a long time, you know how powerful that this promise is, that he who begun a good work in you will see it through. And today we can all look ahead to the future knowing that since God gave birth to this church, he's going to sustain it, no matter what, all the way to the end. What a great promise for High Point Assembly. The second powerful promise pertains to people here today, people who are seeking the truth, and here it is. If you are open to the work that God started in you, he will finish it. I'm sure we have people here today and people who are watching online who are seekers. And you are investigating whether Christianity is real. You're wondering if Christ can truly change your life. 
You've tried just about everything that this world has to offer, and you've come up kind of empty-handed. You've come to realize, like all of us realized at some point, that everything in this world is hollow. It leaves you wanting something more, and you're wondering this morning if a relationship with Jesus Christ might be that something more that you really want and that you are really missing out on. And I believe that this scripture is telling you this morning, whether you realize it or not, there is a reason you have begun seeking out and investigating Christianity these days. And the reason you're here today is God has begun a work in your life. Unbeknownst to you, God has begun a work in your life. I want you to think about that for a moment. There are 7.8 billion people that inhabit this planet that we live on. And God has arrived into your life with his work gloves on, with, with a tool belt and a plan to transform your life. Let that soak in for just one second. God is at work in your life. For now, he's just starting. But you need to understand that the process has begun. It's an amazing thing that the God of the universe would show up with a plan to transform your life out of 7.8 billion people. The truth is he's doing it to millions as we speak. And the reality of that verse today, that, that good work that, that he has begun in you, he wants to finish. He wants to, you to respond and he wants you to cooperate so that he can do all of this incredible transformation within you. It's a work that was planned from this day all the way until the end of your days. But the burning question this morning is this. Are you going to cooperate with the work that God has begun in your life? Seekers of truth, uh, spiritual investigators, whatever title you may want to give someone who is truly considering entering a relationship with Jesus, the sooner that you cooperate with God, the sooner you will enjoy this incredible transforming work that he wants to accomplish in you. But the more that you resist him, the more you put up your dukes and keep fending him off, the tougher the battle is going to become. Why? Because now that he's started to work in you, he ain't going to give up. Foot's in the door. And I know there are People in here that would say, that's my story. What started small grew big, and here I am, and I'm, and I'm serving the Lord, and I, and I owe him everything. There's a famous poet, poem I refer to many times called The Hound of Heaven. It was written by Francis Thomas. That's a man, by the way. And it describes how once God begins a work in your life, you can try to push him away, but he does not give up easily at all. This is what he writes. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him. I thought if I refused him and resisted him, he would go away. But I kept hearing voices. I kept hearing footsteps. His attempt to bring me to himself was relentless. Essentially, what this poet is saying is that God set up shop in my life. And I love that about God. The fact that once he begins, begins a work within a person's life, he says, I'll keep trying to gain full access to your heart for my transforming purposes, and I will never give up. And if a person opens the door of their heart just a crack, do you know what I want to say to them? Just surrender. Raise the white flag. Cooperate with the process. You're not going to wear God down. Can I just tell you that? He's going to keep loving you, and he's going to keep inviting you and tugging you to come his way. You might decide to quit on him, but he's never going to quit on you. The God who has set up shop into your life is going to keep working until you give your life to Jesus and join his family. I knew a man who... <clears throat> God, when God started first working on his life, he said that it went on for 14 years. <laughs> That's a long time to fight. He said for a 14-year period, I was going my own way. 
I was fending God off. I blew up several relationships. I unraveled my business. I alienated myself from my children. He went through this whole list and he ended it with this. The stupidest thing I ever did in my life was wait 14 years to raise the white flag of surrender and allow God to do his good work in my life. And I just want to say to you this morning, don't make the same mistake as this guy did. When Jesus comes your way and he begins to do that work within you, he wants to complete it. So cooperate with him. You will be so glad you did. The third power promise, this pertains to Christ followers. And it's this, since God started a work in you, please remember his work is a good work. It's a good work. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I bring this up because I was talking to a man about becoming a Christian. And he asked me, he said, if I were to become a Christian, would I have to act like one? I said, what does that mean? He said, I know a few Christians and I would never want to act like them. When I asked him how they acted, he said they were rigid, they were judgmental, they were narrow, they had no fun at all, and he said, I don't want to be like that. And I told him that there are two reasons for that. One is despite the fact that God is trying to do a good work in people's lives, sometimes, and I'm not certain exactly how it happens, but some pastors and some churches can do a bad work in people's lives. It comes from bad theology. It comes from an example being established by church leadership of condemning those who are lost and the sin that they're in rather than loving the lost and trying to win them into the kingdom. It's that mindset that it's our little Christian club and outsiders aren't welcome of complaining and shining a, a, a light upon other people's sinful lifestyles while not ever, ever really considering the sin that is going on in their own lives. And furthermore, by not really caring enough to show them the way to Christ Jesus. Sometimes a bad pastor or a bad church can turn joyful people into long-faced pessimists, can turn tolerant people into self-appointed referees of the human race. You know what I'm talking about, the self-righteous ones who condemn constantly. We sometimes turn freed up people into guilt-ridden rule keepers. That is not what it was designed to be. The church sometimes will turn adventurous people into comfort zone people. I'm happy where I'm at. It's a nice, warm, cozy cocoon, and I'm just going to stay right here. I'm not doing anything for the Lord. I don't have any joy in my life, but I'm happy where I'm at. Jesus himself, he confronted the Pharisees on his, uh, on his, in his day, the, the religious leaders of his day, for performing a bad work in people's lives. In Matthew chapter 23, he scolded them for, for burying people in legalism. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but in essence, what he's saying is, you load people up with, with rituals and obligations until their backs start to break, and none of it has anything to do with me at all. It's a bunch of rules and regulations that you've come up with, hoops for people to jump through in order to make them feel like they're holy enough to have a relationship with me. It's not the way it is. He says you're wrecking people's lives in the name of Christianity. So stop doing a bad work in the lives of people who love me. But there's another reason for this. And it comes from an earlier point that I made. It is when we as Christians do not cooperate in the work that God is trying to complete within us. It's when we turn a blind eye to our own sin, our own rotten attitudes, and our own wrong theology that we have held on to our entire life, that if we would just get into scriptures, we would realize that none of what we believe in that topic is true. God is continually pointing these things out to us, but we don't want to make an effort to change them. 
We won't allow the Holy Spirit an opportunity to lead and direct in our lives. We just want to stay where we're at. It's easier that way. It requires nothing of us. So Paul is making clear, and I'm trying to make clear to you today, the work that God is attempting and is doing in our lives is a good work. It is a wonderful work. It is a transforming work. And if we were to cooperate with God in that and give our lives fully over to him, great things will begin to happen in our inner being and our lives would start to be totally transformed. Galatians 5. 22 to 23 is the famous scripture regarding the fruit of the spirit that God wants to see produced in our life. And this is the New Living Translation here. I know I told you King, New King James, but in this verse, I like this one better. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, I miss kindness, and self-control. Against such, there is no law. These are all a part of that, that good work that God is trying to develop within us. We become a far more loving people. We become a more joyful people. We become a more peaceful people. We will become more patient. We will be kinder to others. We will be more faithful in our commitments. Goodness and gentleness will proceed from our actions and our words and we will begin to live self-controlled lives. How many need to improve their self-control? Thank you, I think we all do. That's why it's the last one, because it affects every single one of us. Five years from now, if you allow God to continue to do that work in your life, all of these spiritual attributes will be more active in you that day than they are on this day. And that's God's agenda. That's his plan. He wants to do a good work in your life and in my life. Some of you can so totally relate to what I'm sharing this morning because when you first came to this church or to God, you were stubborn. But God's good work transformed you into being a flexible and an adaptable person. Some arrived here self-righteous, judgmental types, and God's work has helped you become accepting and he's helped you to become grace-giving. Some arrived here arrogant and through the work of the Lord, we become humble. Lots of us came to God completely and totally self-obsessed. The mantra of our life was, it's all about me and it's gotta be done my way and it's gotta be done to benefit me. That's, that's what we were, that was our life, right? It's all about me, it's all about me. And God's, life, God's work in our lives has transformed us from being self-obsessed people, and as I look over to this congregation, to some of the most servant-minded folks I've ever had the opportunity to know. Greedy people have become generous people. Dishonest people have become truth-tellers. Fear-filled people have become courageous people. I've watched God do a work in my life over the years that has so dramatically changed me, particularly in the area of self-control and patience. So the good news is, as God is doing his great work in your and my life, he's saying, I'm going to do it, David, for the rest of your life. And let me tell you why this is so important. Because number one, sometimes we regress. You know what I'm talking about? We say and we do things that break the heart of God. And when we do, the first thing that comes into our mind is that guilt. Well, I bet that was a deal breaker. That was the last straw. That one broke the camel's back. I imagine God throwing out his work gloves and his, and his belt right now. I can hear him saying, hey, Blythe, I've had it up to here with you. I'm done with you. I'm not going to transform your life anymore. But then this verse comes to mind. No, uh -uh, that's not true. He who has begun a good work in me is going to complete it. God will never quit on you or me, even though we regress. 
He will keep his work gloves on and he will keep the blueprint laid out and he will say, David, I see your regression and yes, it does grieve me, but I'm not quitting on you, brother, ever. Let's pick up from here. Let's rebuild. Let's move forward. Today is a new day. The second reason that God's work is a lifetime work is sometimes our spiritual growth curve, it flattens out. At times we get comfortable in our faith and we think to ourselves, I don't want to be stretched anymore. I don't want to go out in any more limbs of faith. I've done that for 40 years. But God doesn't quit on us during those times either. Just he, puts, he keeps his work gloves on and he says, I began a good work in you and I'm going to complete it till the very end. Listen, if you walk away with anything that I say to you this morning, let it be this. God just isn't going to let go of you. He just won't. Sometimes we think that maybe if we just stay at one place spiritually, God will just settle for us staying in that place. But he won't. He won't settle for that. Here's something else I've learned. God loves you and me way too much to leave us at the level that we're currently at. Because God knows what we can actually become. He knows our potential. He knows the kind of growth that continue to happen in you and me. Old or young, it does not matter. He has gifted each one of you with abilities and talents, and he wants to see them utilized in the kingdom of God. He knows the impact that some of you are able to make on the lives of other people that I could never make an impact on, but you can. He says, I love you too much to allow you to flatten out and to stay in that comfortable place that you're in any longer. So I'm gonna keep my work gloves on and I'm gonna keep my tool belt on. I'm gonna keep looking at the plans because I started a good work in you and my intention is to see it finished. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but if I have a negative encounter with somebody and I think, oh well, no big thing. Well, then the next day, whenever I try to pray or eat a meal or watch television, I'm being bombarded. God is in my face all day long saying, Uh, We're not going to let that one go, David. Pick up the phone, make a phone call, set up a meeting, make things right. I got my work gloves on, he says. I love you too much to let you get bogged down by this bit of pride that's going on in your life right now. Or maybe you mistreat your body. Or maybe you mismanage your money. Or you're coloring outside the lines somewhere in an area of your life. This verse says the God who started the good work in you is, going, is not going to let you off the hook with that kind of stuff. He's going to be relentless in trying to pull you up to a higher level because he loves you way too much. Perhaps some of you right now are coloring outside the lines in some way. You're playing things a little loose in the area of ethics in your, in your own business or at the workplace. You're not being totally truthful with somebody about something. You're abusing your body or your mind in some way. You're sleeping in the wrong bed. You're crossing sexual boundaries that that God's word definitely identifies as sin. You see estrangement going on in a relationship and and you're doing nothing about it. You're just neglecting doing anything about it. Well, don't think that God is just going to wink at you over this. That's okay. And move on. Don't worry. Be happy. (laughs) He won't. Nor will he change the truth. Let me just get this clear. Nor will he change the truth of the words written in the Bible to appease you, to make you feel better. You're special to him, but you're not so special that he changes his rules. Sin is sin. And we've got to live in a way where we do not produce sin in our life. So this verse says, the same God who's begun a good work in you will keep banging on the insides of your life until you get all that stuff squared away. And from personal experience standpoint, I want to tell you something. You are outgunned. You just are. I mean, he will relentlessly keep bringing to your attention the sin in your life and the changes that you need to make in order to get back on plan. So basically, you've got two choices today. 
Number one, you can keep duking it out with God. You can keep resisting that good work that he has begun in you, which isn't a whole lot of fun. Or secondly, you can raise the white flag of surrender. You can say, forgive me, God, for being outside the yard markers. I want to cooperate with you as best I can. You see, once you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, you're kind of between a rock and a hard place because you don't enjoy sin anymore. You can enjoy it because you were indwelt now by the Holy Spirit of the living God. And the promptings of the Holy Spirit within you are relentless. He works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, saying to you, you'll never fully enjoy my blessings unless you're completely yielded to me. So those are your options today. Please understand this. Life in all of its fullness only comes when we are fully cooperative with the good work that God is doing in our life. You know, everyone in this building is at a different place. Some of us have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, while others are considering Jesus, and yet there are others here, and you've simply checked out. I'm not even sure why you come. You just sit, and you're checked out. But there are people here today also who recently asked Jesus to be the Lord, so we're at every different level. But, but the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter where you are today, God has a plan, and he has a purpose for your very existence. He has a good work that he wants to accomplish in you. And for some, that work is underway. And for others, he is simply waiting for an invitation. I've been serving God for quite a few years now. And during that time, he continues to challenge me, to try to refine me. Just when I think I've overcome something in my life that needs improvement, he will show me something else. That's why I say that this walk of faith with Jesus is an ongoing process of development. It is a a work in progress. Certainly not your salvation. I'm not talking about your salvation. That's immediate. That does not change. But your participation in the refining process is essential. God wants to refine every single one of us to be shining examples of his love and his grace and his mercy to a lost and a dying world. He wants to file down those rough edges that we all have. He wants to bring into view those blind spots that we ourselves have such an easy time overlooking and and ignoring. It's all a part of this process of transformation, being transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is a lifelong process. And through that process, we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives. And we begin to see a boldness and a confidence appear within us that wasn't there before. It is the greatest journey of our life. It's a journey that God wants to come alongside of us and to walk us through, each and every one of us. But sadly, many of us, we stop the process. We put up walls and barriers between us and God. And sometimes it's driven by pride. We don't think we need any more spiritual growth because we can't see our own deficiencies. Other times it's because we simply get stagnant and we get uninspired. But then there are times when we just don't care. And that's the scary one. This message today was designed to call all of us out from whatever comfortable place that we are in and challenging us to go deeper, to actively seek God's God's transforming work within our personal lives, allow God to complete that good work that he has started within you. Scott, will you come forward? Guys, help me to close this down. I'd like to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would. I want to end this service today by opening up this altar as a response time to this message. There are people here today, and I know that Jesus is knocking at your door. I didn't have to tell you that because he's been knocking for a while. And you've been avoiding him but the hound of heaven is relentless. He will never let up. You've been worried about everything that you see going on in this world and you're scared and you're wondering what it all means. Well, I'll tell you what it means. God's plan for this world is unfolding. He's making ready for Christ's return. And he wants to save you. He wants to unveil his purposes for you and your life. He wants to start a good work within you. He wants you to be ready for Christ's return and receive salvation. It all begins by receiving Jesus' sacrifice 
on the cross for yourself. You simply have to believe that Jesus came and died for you and that the blood that he shed on that cross, it, it covers, it atones, it, it washes away your sin. And all you need to do is confess that to him in prayer. Tell him you believe that he is the Lord of all and that you want him to be the Lord of your life and accept his gift of salvation. When you do that, Jesus will save you and the Holy Spirit will indwell you and thus that good work will begin. There are others here today and you've kind of checked out. You're here, but you're not here. You know Jesus, you asked him into your life, but you just kind of let it in there. You made no attempt to grow any deeper than where you are now. And you're actually, you're actually keeping God at bay, perhaps out of fear. Maybe it's out of concern where he might take you or ask you to do. But if you'd allow him, he can pick back up and complete that work that he started in you, whereby anything he asks you to do or wherever he asks you to go or whatever he wants you to do, you'll be so prepared and so full of power that you'll actually look forward to it. You won't dread it. There's still others who are deeply consumed in an area of your life and it's something that's draining your tension, it's draining your effort. And you got nothing left for God. You don't find any time to be with him. He can't complete that good work in you because you won't give him any of your time because you're consumed with other things and you're dwelling on those other things. Some here today, you need a refreshing of your faith. You need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. You need, you need to allow the Spirit of God to, to, to sweep over you this morning anew, give you the power and the boldness that you have maybe had once, but don't have now or maybe you've never had before. Can I just say to you all this morning that if you'll pursue God, he will very clearly reveal himself and his plan to you. And I wanna give you all an, an opportunity to connect with Jesus this morning once again. This altar time is a time where we come before the Lord and we remove all of the distractions and we just simply for a period of time seek his face. It is at this altar before the Lord where he can begin that process that I've been talking about today. It's at this altar where you can seek him for the strength that you need to cooperate in the work that he's already started in you. And for those of you who choose not to come to this altar this morning, I wanna ask you to please take the time to pray for those who do. I want you to pray for them like it was your own son or daughter, your own, your own husband, your own wife, your own parents. But I wanna spend some time this morning seeking God at this altar, begin to invite him to continue that work or start that work in your life, wherever you're at, as well as committing to him this morning that, that you will cooperate with him in that work. As the worship team sings, let's please come down here and let's spend some time with the Lord and then we'll close in prayer. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Oh, change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. Change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like You are the potter, I am the clay, mold me and make me. 
change my heart, Lord, and change my heart, oh God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God. May I be like you. You are the potter, Lord, and you are the such a sweet presence of the Lord down at this altar today and that's the way it is when we reach out to the Lord that's why this part of cooperation that I've been talking about is so essential because when we surrender and we tear down those walls and those barriers that's when God can come rushing in that's when he can change us and I thank you for praying for those here I know some of you have been praying at your seat but my desire is that we would all allow God to continue that work that has started in us. Let's just not be satisfied where we're at. Let's not say, yeah, this is as good as it gets. It's not. It only gets better. But you got to play a part in all of that. So my heart's cry for my church family is that we would all seek him in greater ways. We would allow him to to work hard in us and change us. We know the changes we need. Some of the things we don't know, but God will reveal it to you as you move forward and allow that work to be done. While they continue to pray, let's go ahead and close this service in prayer. Precious Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this day where we have, we set aside to gather together and worship you, to meet with you. And Father, I thank you for the promises found in your word. I thank you that when you save us, you don't just walk away, but you continue to indwell us through your spirit. You continue to encourage us and stretch us and mold us and make us into the kind of men and women that you desired us to be. Father, we need to play a part in that. And I pray that you would humble each and every one of us to understand that we are nothing without you. We can't get through events of our day without your presence. And Father, let that be refined and defined in us in such a way that that people see it in all of our actions, that the fruit of the Spirit would be so powerful within us that it would exceed, it would actually ooze out of us in all of our encounters. That's our desire. And God, we know that requires the work of the Spirit within us. So I pray that we would all yield to the moving of your Spirit in our lives and the things that you want to accomplish in us. Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct each and every one of us the places we go the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would be designed to build others up and not tear them down. Father, that we would shine like bright lights in a very dark world. And that bright light is the love of Christ that shines through us. Let it be so evident that people will literally come up to us and ask us what it is about us that is different. And then you open that door for us to share your goodness with them. I pray, Father, that you would open up a door and give each one of us a divine appointment this week 
before we meet together again where someone will come into our path and we can share your goodness with them and invite them to church and let them taste and see that the Lord is good. I pray that you would be with us in the workplace, be with us in our family life, Lord God. Let us, let us uh, live our lives loving and caring and cherishing and, and all of those attributes of your fruit of the Spirit would be worked in, in and through us. And I pray as we leave here today and we go out into the world, into this mission field, Lord, that we would go in love and that we would draw other people to you. And I ask these things in the precious holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here. Change my heart, oh.